Welcome back hey. to another episode of the Piano Pedagogy Podcast, the podcast where we talk about topics related to piano pedagogy and music teaching. I'm Jacqueline Beckoff, and I own a successful piano studio in Southern California, and I'm also the owner of Defined Music Teacher. With me, as always, is Ariane Lacra, the owner of Hi. Whittier Family, or Family Music School in Southern California. How are things going today, Ariane? Doing well. It's a nice day out. I'm happy to be here um, and excited for our second podcast, Piano Pedagogy Podcast. Yeah, for sure. Our two topics today are scales and continuous improvement. Since we started with Ariane's topic last week, let's start with mine today. All right. Sounds great. So continuous improvement. Um, this is something that we typically expect of students, right? It would be very weird for us if um, one of our students stopped progressing for um, any length of time and we didn't try to, uh, to, to, to find the cause of this problem, because we do see it as a problem, right? If one of our students isn't progressing. Oh, yeah. And um, then we, we try to solve it, right? But it's not seen as something that we can tolerate at all in, in a student, right? Because they're here to learn and, and we're here to facilitate that, right? And when we're in, you know, if a, if a teacher is going through training like uh, at university, like we did, um, we're learning just so much stuff every week. And again, not, you know, not progressing would be seen as an undesirable thing. Right. Um, but when we, you know, when you graduate and, and your training kind of ends, that it's easy to slip out of the the kind of student mindset, right? And get set in your your ways. You know, you're you're comfortable doing things in the same way that you have been for a while. It works. Why do we need to change anything? Right. Um, and um, that has a, a sense of being comfortable. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with, with becoming comfortable as a teacher, right? But if we stop our self-improvement, right, then we get into a, a, a dangerous spot where we begin to stagnate, right? Um, a lot of other professions have built-in requirements that you can never stop learning, right? Um, like school teachers, they have professional development. They need to take certain amount of continuing education and, and professional development classes, otherwise they can lose their teaching license. Or like a surgeon, right? They need to stay up to date on medical journals, and you know they never they they can never stop learning. But we have no regulatory body, and it's just up to ourselves to police ourselves, right? To make sure that we don't get complacent. So um, have you noticed any kind of times in, in your career now that you've graduated? How long have you been graduated for now, Ariane? Um, since May. So I guess that would be about uh, eight months or so, seven, eight Yeah, months. and was did you notice a, a, a change after, after you, you, you exited university? Oh, yeah. I mean, it went from being a pressure cooker of having to learn my recital pieces for the master's program to uh, it's almost as though, you know, the, the rocket ship that was launched into the atmosphere is now in space and there's no more 
resistance from the atmosphere, uh, to put it a little metaphorically. That's how I always felt that, oh, suddenly I'm just floating in space and there's nothing that I need to fight anymore. But, <laughs> you know, as, as you're saying, stagnation in, in this profession and in many professions just uh, is not going to help us improve in our jobs and, and in our craft. So we have got to fight that urge to, uh, to, to just be complacent and, and sit back and relax too much. I, I, I totally agree. Because I think the students and families and clients, for, for, first of all, can tell um, when we're out of practice, be it when we're demonstrating certain passages or uh, something like that. And um, also because as educators and, and artists, we need to constantly fuel our need to be inspired. Absolutely. I, I can totally agree. You know, after I graduated, I found it difficult to self-motivate. To, mm -hmm. to continue to study new music and push myself, right? Because there is such a, a driving pressure, like you're saying, in university to continue to push yourself, um, and, you know, past any kinds of limits that, that you've built up for yourself, right? Um, and then after graduation, all of a sudden, the rhythm of your life just changes, right? You're no longer... Uh, bound by these 16-week uh, blocks of time in between, you know, spurts of relaxation, right? You're no longer bound by the, the college uh, schedule. But um, the, the personal practice, our own, our own, you know, piano study is only one of those areas that, that we can stagnate in, right? Um, when we're talking about a music studio, it's helpful to think about the entire music studio, right? Yes. And um, part of the um, part of that is absolutely our teaching itself, right? But that's only part of the the whole music studio. We also have the business side of things as well as the technological side of things. And we shouldn't stagnate in any of these these areas because like you were saying people notice not only when they notice we're not practicing, but they notice when things aren't changing, right? Um you know, an example of stagnation would be lapsing in your your maintenance of your piano, right? Mm -hmm. Allowing your piano to go out of tune a little bit too much before taking care of it, right? Or if you don't have the greatest instrument, not working towards upgrading that would be a, a stagnation, right? That would be a stagnation on, on the technology side of a music studio, right? Um, so when we're when we're thinking about the future, we always want to have some kind of plan for how we can continue to improve continuously, right? And um, having that for our teaching, for our technology, and for our business is absolutely crucial, right? So um, when we are doing this kind of planning, it's easy to just plan for the future, right? To just take out a piece of paper and write, you know, by the end of the year, I want to have all of this 
done. But for setting realistic goals, right, and the part of our job as teachers is setting realistic goals for our students. Because if they don't, if we set them a goal and they're not able to, to, um, to reach that goal. I know I've, I'm guilty of that. Sometimes in the past I've set goals for my students and then I've had to pare back that expectation. Uh, and that's never uh, a good thing. Has that ever happened to you? Yes, it has, especially in the early stages of um, preparing students for recitals for the very first time as a teacher, you know, for my very first time as a teacher, having to prepare students for recitals and performances and things like that. Oh yeah, you know, you 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 get a better sense of how much a student or a teacher can um, can really handle in a given amount of time, and and there's so many different factors. So in the same way, uh, at least there's we have some advantage as teachers who want to set goals for ourselves uh, because we have seen what it takes to successfully goal set with our students. Absolutely. We have we have a bit of practice with it, right? We have a bit of practice with it. So to help contextualize things, instead of only looking forward, it's also very helpful to look back, right? So if you want to set some long-term goals for yourself, say you want to set some goals for things that you want to accomplish in by the end of 2024, right? So that's looking one year ahead, right? We'll say January of 2025 is, is our end date, right? It's also helpful for us to first look back at what was going on in January of 2023 in those, in, in whatever area we're looking for. Are we looking to push our, our business forward and, and try new things, provide new opportunities? Are we looking to, to hone our teaching um, our, our teaching methods, or maybe we're looking to integrate technology in, in new and different uh, ways that we haven't previously, right? So in order to set a goal for a year in, in the future, it can look, help to look at where we were a year in the past, right? So That's a great point, you know, and, and, and that self-reflection, I think, is critical uh, for goal setting. Absolutely, yeah. So um, I'm thinking in in my um, in my personal uh, in my personal studio, some of the goals that I'm looking to um, to to accomplish in 2024, right? Looking back first at where I was at the beginning of 2023, right? At the beginning of 2023, I was, uh, my studio was a little less full. I had just had a major, major surgery. So things weren't really, um, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't super, super busy. And because of that major surgery, I also wasn't really interested at the time in, in really pushing things forward. So I was, I was basically just coasting for much of 2023. In fact, um, I was really just trying to, to get myself back on my feet. And I reestablished um, my, my student. Oh, I mean, I, I'm, I went from like 25, 20 up to more like 27. So it wasn't a dramatic, a dramatic number. But um, that's an important thing to contextualize for myself, right? I, I did just, it, surgery was a little over a year ago. And setting a goal in the future, I, I shouldn't necessarily um, expect the the world of myself in this next year. Um, so some personal goals for me in 2024 is um, I'm looking to reintegrate, um, I'm re looking to reintegrate 
um, composition into my studio. It's something that I've previously introduced, but I was not able to give it the kind of focus and attention that it needed for it to be a, a major part of my studio and my students' experience, right? For example, right now it's on my website, my studio's website, that my students are not only great performers, but they're also great composers. And I don't think that I'm living up to that expectation that I'm putting on people, right? So 2024 is uh, I'm looking to to get myself back in that that co composition mindset, and I've outlined a couple ways for myself to make that happen. In August, I'm going to be introducing a um, composer's workshop as an uh, as as my first add-on program for my students. Everything right now is all inclusive. So at whatever tuition option, they're getting everything, basically, just the amount of less, the length of their lesson changes. But um, in August, I'm going to be updating my program with a composer's workshop as an add-on. I'm not sure about the pricing right now, but it'll be a once a month group class for my students to take where they can um, get extra composition projects, share their compositions, and kind of give a way for me to dip my toes into uh, really making that a priority. Also in August, I'm announcing um, a third recital every year. Right now I do two recitals every year, and I'm announcing a third recital. And that recital is only going to be music that is composed by students of my piano studio. So either they're performing their own compositions, oh. if, or they're going to be performing compositions written by either myself or uh, another student uh, of my piano studio. So I'm setting myself a very lofty, um, not lofty, but very uh, intentional goal by announcing something like this to my students, to my clients, if I, I am kind of forcing myself to have a certain degree of follow through on that, because if no one's composing, then when it comes time for that, um, you know, composition recital, I'm going to be in a bit of a pickle if there's no one that's been composing. Um, and uh, <laughs> a good that, way to keep yourself accountable. Yeah, right. Because it's hard. It's hard to stay to stay. You know, we were just talking about about staying motivated. So by announcing certain things to your clients, um, and even in my announcement, I'm planning to to do a bit of a mea culpa and, and talk about how, um, you know, I, I several years ago I, I announced this, but I haven't really followed through with it, and it hasn't been a big enough part of my studio, and I'm looking to rectify that going forward. And I'm sure forward. that you know that that honesty will be very constructive honesty with self perhaps honesty with the clients um that that should i don't know kind of be cleansing i i feel like it's it's it just paves the way for you know a, a true new goal to be set and that's a really cool goal uh my thought about it is you know is is that a personal goal per se or is it more of a studio goal and if so if 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 you agree that it's a little bit more of a studio goal, then my next, my follow-up question would be, do you have any goals that only involve your own um, growth? As a so student? I do agree that it's more of a, a studio 
goal, right? A lot of this is about growth, uh, you know, continuous improvement as a piano teacher is pretty closely entwined with your studio, which are hard to separate out being a piano teacher if you also own your own studio. Um, but for myself, um, I um, absolutely, I have some, some goals this year. I, um, one of the things I do with my students is I set a practice theme for the upcoming year, they they set it. So um, I, they they set one area of of practice that they want to try to really focus on for the upcoming year, right? So by the end of 2024, they'll look back at the video they recorded for themselves and be able to honestly say, "Wow, I'm way better at articulations now in December than I was in January," right? And uh, last year's theme was about uh, trying to rekindle my passion for the piano because since graduating university, I really struggled to to find that passion and, and find that reason to practice. And um, I made some, some headway with that, but this year I'm really going to try to push that forward and, and find reasons to practice, find music that makes me feel passionate and, and do that for myself, yeah, on a personal level. What about you? Oh, well, I, I like that a lot. And, and I wish you the best of luck with both your studio goals and your personal uh, musical goals uh, and goals in general. For me, I would like to start working on, you know, going through my jazz fake book and and, and picking out the pieces, the standards that I love and um, going through and actually how do I say composing my own um, renditions of each standard that I like. Maybe I'll pick four or five and then go out and, and, and just, just hash out a written jazz arrangement um, of these. Because Ooh. I was classically trained and I'm having a hard time learning how to just improvise jazz music. So I figure if I could just think through and give myself some kind of stepping stone um, then I might be able to improvise more effectively in the future after this stepping stone phase between the, the bridge phase between uh, being classically trained and being proficient in jazz piano. That's awesome. That sounds like a, a really great goal for yourself. And, and composition, do you compose a lot? Not really, but I would love to start. I composed a little bit in college and, and then, you know, once I started once I entered the workforce, all of that kind of fell by the wayside. But now that I'm out of school, um, I just want to keep on uh, fueling that creative side of, of, of my mind. Still need to work on um, my studio goals, though. Do you have those kinds of um, those goals in mind? Or do you find yourself just kind of getting by from from day to day with your studio? For studio goals, um, I do have one in mind that I've talked to my uh, my partner a lot. Um, you know, he asks, "When are you going to have a recital of your own?" I've never actually held my own recital separate from the community music schools that I worked at uh, in the past years. So in May, we're going to go through that whole process of, of looking at different recital ven venues and uh, by May, having one 
ready for all the students to perform at. So that's that's my that's great. Goal. <laughs> that's awesome. That's huge. That's a big step forward, and um, that's awesome. Yeah. So um, as in closing for this topic, um, I also wanted to say that these continuous studio improvements are also a wonderful justification to uh, continue to raising the uh, price of your tuition. Because <laughs> if you continue to offer more things at a higher quality and have exciting new things to announce, that pairs very well with raised prices. And uh, it's not unfair to, to, to do that because, you know, you're offering more and you're bettering yourself and that's worth something right? That's worth something. So the announcement in August will be paired with a price increase. All right. Yeah. All, all the music teachers out there, take note from what Jacqueline is saying right here. Take note of what she's saying because, um, you know, we got to be mindful of our moolah. <laughs> it can't just be charity work and, and we, we have to know our worth. Absolutely, absolutely. Any last thoughts before we move on to your topic? Well, once again, you know, I I wish you the best of luck in achieving your goals. I know you will, and I'm excited to hear more about how the students' compositions go. That is so exciting. Absolutely. So, scales. I remember I was talking with my partner, and um, I mentioned that your topic was scales, and and I said that is just you know a fascinating topic. And I was thinking to someone not in the know that might come off as being very sarcastic, right? Oh, scales. What an interesting topic. But it really <laughs> is such a wide open. Uh, just there's so many different ways of teaching scales, and uh, it is really fascinating to me. So I'd love to hear what you have to talk about. Oh my gosh, I think that is hilarious that that, that occurred to you. That it never even occurred to me um, in this conversation until you brought it up that, that that could be misconstrued as a sarcastic thing. Because to me, I am just floored to talk about scales. There's so many possibilities when teaching scales. You don't have to necessarily use a book, which is ideal for all those students who struggle to just keep their eyes on a page or something like that. And for your visual learners, you absolutely can teach scales um, using using a book or or pamphlets. There, there are just so many ways to do it, and you can really tailor um, the teaching of scales to each individual student if you really want to. And I appreciate that flexibility because I kind of, I, I strive to tune in to each student's needs. Um, and that can mean teaching scales completely differently from one person to the next who walks into the studio. Um, so let's get to it, you know. First off, once, once the student say they're a beginner or an elementary student, once they have the necessary finger strength to play and, and dexterity to play each key individually, um, one after the other, then a five finger pattern, a five finger scale is pretty straightforward and easy to teach. What I like to, uh, what I like to also do is, is teach contrary motion 
you know, at the beginner level with, with the right hand playing C five finger scale up and down while the left hand um, plays backwards starting from middle C at the same time in what I like to term a butterfly position for the, for the younger learners. Um, and that, do you do that um, from the er the earliest stages? When do you take it from hands alone to hands together? Pretty early on, definitely not in the first session or two, but once I've determined that the student is able to use their fingers independently um, in the hand. So, so it really depends on the person, but if they're more comfortable with playing things like melodic fifths at first and in the Faber books, for instance, or just playing steps, then we hold off on five finger scales until a little bit later. But some students, especially the ones who play sports in their childhood, uh, they have that dexterity and finger strength and, and form kind of built in right off the bat. So again, case to case, it's different. I've waited months for some and waited just a week or two for others, um, even though they're at the same uh, repertoire level, you know? Gotcha. After contrary motion, you know, which which is a great way for one hand to teach the other, for, for the dominant hand to teach the uh, non-dominant hand, for instance, how to do that pattern, we move on to parallel motion. And I know a lot of st uh, teachers don't like to do this, but I just tell my students, even if they're tiny, no matter how old they are, I tell them, I use the words contrary motion, the terms contrary and parallel motion to describe what's happening. Once they understand the concept of contrary motion versus parallel motion, no matter how little they are or how big they are, um, it just paves the way for learning octave scales. So, so is that something that you like to do? I'd, I'd love to get your, thoughts on this. Do you use these terms uh, when describing the different directions that your hands can go rel relative to each other? I think it's a really interesting question um, because it's not only related to just contrary and parallel motion, right? So many things that we can name don't necessarily need um, a name when they're first introduced, right? Um, for example, I don't name I don't name the concept of dynamics. Forte and piano exist in a vacuum before the concept of dynamics is introduced, right? Um, as well as, as for contrary and parallel motion, I don't um, I don't name those because I've never really, you know, but when the, when when we introduce the five finger scales, um, the concept of parallel and contrary they would exist in just the scales, just just the, the scale practice. There would not be in the book I use, in, in, in the books that I use, contrary and parallel motion isn't in their sheet music at that stage. So yeah. uh, I would I would struggle to keep it relevant and, and for them to make a connection to something when there is no, I mean, very, I mean, oblique is really, the only there's only it's only used a couple of times and so the answer short short answer is no because there isn't um a an, an opportunity for them to use that knowledge in their in their sheet music got it okay yeah that's fair it could be hard to 
put a more abstract concept like that into practice without um, without repertoire examples. But uh, I don't know. I was pretty surprised to find that even my youngest students seemed to get it after a while of just of just doing the gesture in the air for them and performing the gesture in the air for them. And I'm I'm really big on scales, so I guess one of my studio goals is to introduce supplemental um, repertoire to the elementary level students that contains scale work done in both hands simultaneously because usually you know you might have scale work in one hand or the other but it's just a it's just like a right hand left hand coordination job that that can actually be more easily taught than one might imagine once once you really practice it maybe with with a steady beat metronome um things like that give little pointers like oh the second finger and fourth finger usually coincide same with the third same with four and two and then same with one and five these are all little tricks once you get into the octave scales i i usually like to ask the student are you a more of a letters person or a numbers person um or both and depending on the way they respond I'll I'll just quickly write out a little chart for them, you know, C D E cross under F G da da da, and uh, or one two three cross under one two three four five and back. And I also have these flashcards that group the three white key groups together, and then uh, other flashcards that have the four white key group F G A B. Um, so if, if you block that across the entire keyboard, you know, anyone can yeah, do that and for sure. learn the C scale at the multi-octave level. Yeah, I'm going to go grab something right over here from my piano that's actually quite relevant to this topic um, because uh, the, what you were just talking about with the, the groups is very similar to, to an approach that I was taught in university that um, I, I use with when I, when I get to the octave scales. Um, mm -hmm. For those of you who are listening um, on just, just the audio, you won't be able to see this, but for those of you uh, watching the video, you can see that I'm, I'm holding up a chart here with the right hand uh, C major fingering written out and below that the left hand C major fingering written out and the fingering is split up into three different groups one two three one two three four and then five as a separate nice. group and um, I um, use a similar approach to to what you're describing about about grouping them yeah, yeah, it's a pretty effective approach um, just because blocking things tends to really be repetitive and, and you can apply it to any register of the keyboard and, and, and it really reinforces the student's idea of when they need to cross under or over and when they use pinky, um, you can do it in any direction, etc. Um, but I find for the more auditory learners, it tends to, you know, reciting things and, and kind of exclaiming the word cross, like right between the two notes where you cross seems to 
work pretty well. Or for, for multi-octave scales, let's say you're working with someone who's now ready to do a, a two-octave scale, um, saying things like three, four, three, at the moment at which you cross, uh, tends to help a lot. You know, introducing the rule of three, four, three helps. And, and then incorporating that. So in the moment while they're doing it, reciting for them, um, in my experience, almost never fails. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I, we don't have time to, to fully cover the issue. I mean, we could spend weeks just discussing scales, um, but we may we may bore some of our of our listeners. Um, but I was curious about the the technique that you that how you how you teach the technique for um, the octave scales. How do you teach that technique for the cross under or crossover? Oh yeah. So um, once the person learns, you, you're saying sorry, multi octave. You said. No, just for the single octave, oh, single the one, octave. the cross under with the th uh, thumb or, or cross over with, with three I or usually, four. I usually have the student, I, I, I demonstrate, I model first, and I emphasize the importance of wrist alignment, you know, making sure that the wrist usually stays aligned with the biggest knuckle and the elbow making sure that any wrist movement and, and um, overall arm movement remains from side to side rather than kind of bobbing up and down, which is such a ubiquitous rookie mistake when you're first learning um, that technique of crossing under for the octave scale. Um, and once we've discussed those, once we've discussed that more gesture-oriented technique, then I get into the reciting for auditory students and the charting out very similarly to how you did it um, with, with grouping numbers like one, two, three, and one, two, three, four, and then saying only your final, only your highest um, pitch in the right hand gets the fifth finger, or only your lowest pitch in the left hand gets the fifth finger in most of these white key scales. And do you ask? Do you do you ask them? Would you be able to ask your students which note gets finger number five? Would that be something that they would be able to internalize and then respond with? I think once they've practiced the scale a few times, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Last week we talked about preparation stage learning. Are scales something that you work ahead of time to prepare for, or is this a thing that you introduce all all at once? Well, seeing, I'm kind of disappointed. I think Faber really dropped the ball on this. Piano Adventures introduces octave scales so late in the game um, compared to when they could. I feel like that I do a lot of preparation stage learning um, with as far as scales go. My students know their octave scales almost as Pretty much as soon as they get to the uh, lesson book one in Faber, if not sooner. And and a lot of times it's because they've heard scales before, maybe from a sibling that I teach or, or maybe from my demonstration, and they're eager to learn. <laughs> it's interesting, yeah. Um, the Faber does introduce them. It's one of the big criticisms. Uh, some people have a, crit a big criticism about that, and also some people have a big criticism about eighth notes being introdu introduced far too late, in their opinions. Mm -hmm. um, but um, it's interesting because I I think that I have a much um, 
lower focus, much smaller focus on on scales with my students um, that than, than I otherwise than I otherwise could. Um, I find it. Uh, I find that some students. Um, Maybe this is not necessarily some students that I find it uh, tricky to make them relevant for the very early elementary student. I do five finger scales. I usually do um, C and G um, are, are scales I cover in in while well, a student is in the primer level book, and then I start going through the the circle of fifths for the five finger scales. Um, on the during during the level one book, but I I typically don't cover the the full octave scales um, until until well I mean I prepare I use preparation stage learning, but I, I don't really cover them until they'll start seeing it in their music. Yeah, you know it's it's tricky to know when to introduce scales and why it's it's sometimes difficult to explain to students in this day and age why scales arpeggios, cadences, chords are so important. Um, but, you know, I, <laughs> I rewatched Aristocats for the first time ever in my adult life, uh, yet just yesterday. And, and it, for me, it just goes back to that song. Um, you must learn your scales and your arpeggios. Like, when, when I was growing up, I didn't even question it. And I find that it, it, Learning scales does have some kind of grounding effect on students who are otherwise all over the place in their in their learning. <laughs> Jumping yeah. from topic to topic, maybe if they're struggling with the subject matter, um, I choose scales, chords, and cadences, and and finger patterns, etudes as a grounding mechanism for them. Yeah, and and that sounds like um, that sounds like a really good way to keep your students, um, you know, in you know with some with anchored with some consistency for sure. Yeah, and um, so you introduce the octave scale. Do do you introduce music that um, gives them the sheet music representation, or or rather, music that uses the octave scales in it before it's introduced in two B in the Faber two B. Yeah, yeah, there are a few pieces in the Masterwork Classic series or Keith Snell, um, all of these repertoire books that contain Baroque, Classical, Romantic, and 20th century works tend to have more of an emphasis on scales as well as some uh, significant pedagogical works from more recent times. So, so I like to incorporate those a lot. You know, the works of Florence Price usually incorporate a lot of scale work too. So I'm happy to lean on that. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, um, it's just about time for us to, to wrap up. Do you have any last thoughts that you'd like to share? Well, I don't know if it's too late to say this, but my Christmas lights are still up and I just wanted to wish everyone a happy new year. <laughs> My decorations are also still up. And yes, I do wish everybody a happy new year and hope that their holiday season went well. But I think that's it for us today. Thanks for listening to the Piano Pedagogy podcast, and we will see you next week.